Hello and welcome back to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike. Today I'm joined with Jonathan Merritt, an award-winning writer on religion, culture, and politics, and the author of Learning to Speak God from Scratch. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everyone, to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If this is your first time listening, I appreciate you checking us out and hope that you enjoy this episode. If you're a long-time listener, if you've tuned in to one, two, 55, 56 episodes, I appreciate you and your continued support. It greatly helps. I also appreciate if you can leave a Google or iTunes review if you've not done so already. So go on, press pause to this podcast, take a second, leave a review, and then come back and join us. Today's conversation is with Jonathan Merritt. He is an award-winning writer on culture, religion, and politics, currently serving as a contributing writer for The Atlantic and a contributing editor for the week. He has published over 3,500 articles in respected outlets and is an author of several critically acclaimed books, including, most notably, most recently, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Jesus is Better than you imagined, and a faith of our own, following Jesus beyond the culture wars. He is an expert in writing and authoring and all things in that realm, and I'm excited for this podcast because we chat about his new book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. Uh, We break into his faith story, and we also uh, tackle a bit more about his thoughts on Donald Trump, what he's learned over the past year and a half. So through this conversation, you can expect to hear a lot more about sacred words. Um, Jonathan left the Bible Belt, went to New York City, and was starstruck, was uh, whiplashed in a sense, understanding uh, the differences um, and what people mean when these sacred words are used or not used or misused. Uh, So he looked with collaboration with Barna Group, Uh, into this phenomenon of sacred words and the importance. It led him to linguistics and the importance of language in shaping our own perception, um, how we view faith, and then how culture welcomes or accepts it. And there is a pattern in all this as well, which you'll hear more about in this conversation. In learning to speak God from scratch, uh, the less we speak about faith, the less we think it, the less we experience it and the less our culture welcomes it. You'll also hear more about evangelism, linguistics, Christianese, and much more about this book and more about Jonathan and his work as well. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. And without further ado, let's turn it on over to the conversation podcast I'm having with Jonathan Merritt. Congratulations on your latest book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. Um, I'm sure it's been a work in progress and uh, definitely a journey, um, but glad to hear that you're um, set to release this book in August. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of nervous about it. I've, I often um, have told people that that this is uh, my favorite book that I've ever written, but Learning to Speak God from Scratch is also, I think, my most important book. So. I'm excited to just uh, birth this baby and yeah. and see what people think about it. I, yeah, awesome. I love that. 
Um, so I, I want to hear, obviously, the, the title is very interesting, and I'm sure there's a backstory uh, that, that led to this this learning to speak God from scratch. Um, and, and at first, when I when I looked at it, I... I, at first, I, I said, "Oh yeah, you know, it's it's the book How to Speak to God from Scratch. It's like a how-to." Um, but uh, you know, obviously, looking back at it, um, was I was cr- I corrected myself on the on the title of the book. But I want to I want to hear a bit more about the, about the backstory of really you know what what how this book came to light and then the really how this initial idea uh, kind of came to fruition. Mm-hmm. You know, I had written. Um three books by the time I was 30 and I don't think that 30 year olds have that much wisdom to share so I've (laughs) I've given the world like 150 some thousand words of whatever you might call wisdom I'd put air quotes around that and I thought you know I'm just making up my mind right here and right now that I'm not going to write another book until I feel that I really have a message that needs to be shared with other people. Yeah. And, you know, they, uh, in, in this world, you, they, they typically will tell you, write a book every two years. Yep. And it's been, I think, now about five years, maybe a little bit over five years since my last book. So there was this big gap in between. But the reason is, is I just said, you know, I'm not going to sit down and just come up with something new to say. And everything in, in that world for me shifted when about five years ago I, I moved from the Bible Belt. I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, and I moved to New York City. And when I got here, I ran into an unexpected language barrier. It, it wasn't that I couldn't speak English anymore. I mean, like I could, I could you know, order a hot dog at a streetcar mm. or have conversations with people standing at a at an intersection, but I could no longer speak God. Hmm. I found that any time I tried to have a spiritual conversation, any time I tried to use words, sacred words that I'd taken for granted all my life, words like grace and gospel and sin and salvation, Hmm. words that in the Bible Belt, everybody knows what they mean, and you don't have to clarify those things. When I tried to use them here, there was either confusion because the person had never heard that word, or they had been hurt by those words, or they had heard those words before, but, but they had assumed a, a, a very different meaning than the one I grew up with. And what I realized was, uh, after it wasn't that long until I just said, you know what, I'm not going to have these conversations anymore. They're too difficult. And oftentimes when people would say, what do you mean by that word? What do you mean when you say grace? Hmm. I realized I didn't even know what those words meant. I had used them so often that I didn't even know what they meant anymore for me. And it was shortly after that sort of crisis of faith, if you will, Mm. that that I began to have conversations with friends from disparate places all across the country, from the deep south where I'd come from, from the Midwest, even from the West Coast, different places, people who, who considered themselves to be believers who were having the same experience. Uh, they were in, these, in, in their own communities and people weren't speaking from the same script. And so they found that they were not having spiritual conversations. They were not using sacred words with any regularity either. So that made me curious and I decided to conduct a national survey 
and uh, partnering with Barna Group, I conducted a survey of over a thousand Americans and found that despite widespread religiosity, despite the fact that over 70% of Americans claim to be Christian, the majority of Americans say, I don't speak God. For whatever reason, I've lost confidence in the vocabulary of faith. And when I realized this, that there was a cultural crisis, a spiritual crisis affecting tens of millions in the English-speaking world, I said, okay, it's time to pick up the pen again. It's time to write a book. Mm, wonderful. And just just based on that, it, the, the, the question I immediately thought of is like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, I think is the initial question I had. Was that, was that something that ended up kind of coming into into your mind or thought, you know, what, what, what is, what, what do people, or maybe what are some core beliefs or what are some values people have that, that can kind of validate or or rather people can assume that they are a Christian because of that. Is that something that, that you wrestled with? And, and I guess on that, what, what, what does it mean in your, in your eyes to, to be a Christian? You know, it, that is a question that is so interesting because everyone these days seems to have their own answer, which makes sense because yeah. Christianity in, in its Western expression, particularly in its American expression, is highly individualistic. So it would be natural to assume that I can determine what a Christian should be or that my church can determine what a Christian should be or my favorite author can determine Mm. what a Christian should be. And I actually write later on in this book, I I have a whole chapter that sort of explores that issue where I, I, uh, I sort of take it out of our hands and place it into the hands of the earliest Christians. You know, the earliest Christians came up with these things that they called creeds. And, you know, particularly if you go to one of these low church evangelical churches, you know, that has um, smoke machines and, and rock bands and things, you probably mm. have never encountered the creeds, at least in, in your current context. But the earliest Christians formulated these creeds to say, here's, here's kind of what m- joins us together at the base. And, and it says things like, I believe in God, who's the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only son. Mm. Uh, it tells the, the, the Christian story. And essentially, if, that, if you can say that creed and you say, I believe that, that sort of forms the, the core of what a, uh, a Christian uh, believes. That says, okay, if you can say that, that makes you a Christian. Now, the hard thing for some people to swallow is it doesn't say anything about uh, Calvinist notions of salvation. It doesn't say anything about whether women can serve as pastors. It doesn't say anything about who can be married and who can't be married. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole lot of things outside of the creeds that we're going to disagree on. Mm -hmm. But I think if we at least ground ourselves in in a historic expression of Christianity, we cannot or should not look at someone who disagrees with us on some of those secondary or tertiary Mm. issues, however important they may be, and say, well, if you don't agree with my position on this or my interpretation of what the Bible says about this, then I'm a Christian and you are not one. Hmm. Wonderful. Um, And it sounds like uh, a lot of what catalyzed your 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 this nationwide research with Barna Group 
Um, but then also the, the qualitative investigation, as you mentioned, having conversations uh, with friends from across the country or people maybe that you didn't know across the country and just your maybe your day to day walks, you know, walks to the park in Brooklyn or, or wherever, you know, New York City that ended up kind of sparking and catalyzing. Was it uh, from what was it based on really the importance of these sacred words, the you know, what, what does grace mean that and that really kind of catalyzed you to dig deeper? Or was there uh, additional maybe statistics or additional conversations that really kind of t- took it uh, to that next next level? You know, in the in the work that I that I do as a columnist, uh, when I write for the Atlantic, for example, um, I always look for what I call pings. So as I study culture, as I watch culture, I start to sense things. Mm. That's that's sort of an intuitive process. And the next thing that I typically will do then is I'll look for pings, or I'll even listen for pings, which means. I'll start to bounce these ideas off of others Mm. and I'll hear them say the same things over and over. So somebody that I talked to who lives in St. Louis and somebody who I talked to who lives in uh, Oxford, Mississippi will say the same thing, even though one may be an Episcopalian and one may be a member of an AME church. Mm. And so you start to realize that when you hear these things happening, that you're you're sensing something, something is happening. And oftentimes you can pair data with that. Now, in this case, I couldn't find the data, so I had to do it. Uh, But it was it was hearing those pings. And ever since I announced I was going to do this book, I cannot tell you how many people and I bet you many of the people listening to this podcast right now would say this. They'd say, you know, I don't feel real comfortable having spiritual conversations with my coworkers. I don't feel really comfortable at uh, the PTA meeting when I'm talking to my neighbor. Yeah, actually, you know, faith, God, spirituality, grace, these things don't come up very often to me. Now, what's interesting is, is if you ask them the question, is faith important to you? Is spirituality important to you? Is God important to you? Most of them will say, yeah, yeah, it's important to me. Wait, so it's important to you, but you don't speak about it. You know, one thing Mm -hmm. I know is is the things that we love, the things that are important to us, we speak about. Mm -hmm. You you meet friends who have children, and what do they do? They talk about their kids all the time. You would find it really weird if you knew someone for five years or a decade, and one day you found out, wait, you have children? I've known you for a decade and you've never even said a word about your children. What, what's going on? Some, mm. That would tell you something is wrong. Something is broken down in that system, in that person. And so what we have to then grapple with is this disconnect between saying we love something and failing to find ways to articulate that with any regularity. And so that raised a big question for me. Not just are we speaking God with regularity, because we are not. In the United States, about 7% of Americans say that they have a spiritual conversation about once a week, which is not all that frequent. Hmm. Uh, If you look at practicing Christians, so there's Christians that go to church regularly, that number is still tiny. Only 13% of practicing Christians say that they speak God about once a week. I mean, that's sort of, that's shocking. How often, how many times a week do you talk about a good meal? How many times a week do you talk about your children or your family? How many times a week do you talk about sports? 
and yet we say we love these things. And so it wasn't just, are we speaking God? The answer is no, we're not. The answer is that the real question was why? Why are we not? And then the second question is, can we do anything about it? And that's really where I put a lot of my time and energy when researching this book. Mm-hmm. So, so I, yeah, I, I think just from hearing this now, I, I, clearly it's important to to continue to have sacred words as as we look at using the analogy that you mentioned. Um, you know, you if you want to talk about you, you know a, a father or mother talking about their kids, it's important because it 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 gives you insight into that relationship. So can can we it sounds like we can have the same parallel parallel then you know when when talking about sacred words as well so i kind of want to hear uh your take why you know why why does speaking god matter and why should you know how how do we do it in a way that is not maybe not too overt uh but is also welcoming enough uh where where we're we're keeping its integrity Mm -hmm. well i think your first question is more important than people even realize. So, um, I would say, um, number one, why is it important? Well, you touched on some of these things, which is, well, we have to find a way to articulate what we love. And, and many of us, we feel that, that we love these things. And I don't doubt that. I don't doubt. Look, I, I have lots of friends who say, yeah, I don't really talk about my faith that often, but I do love my faith. I don't doubt that. I I believe they love their faith. I just believe they've lost confidence in the vocabulary of faith, that they no longer feel that the words that they've been given or the meanings that they've attached to them are efficient enough or effective enough to carry the weight of their experiences. So that's one reason is, yeah, we 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 need to find a way to articulate the things that we feel and things that we love. But there's a bigger reason, and I didn't even realize it until I started researching for this book. Mm. I decided I got I have to learn a little something about linguistics. I mean, I'm a religion guy. I studied religion in grad school. I've never I've never studied linguistics, so I needed to know if you're going to write a book about language, you might ought to read something about language. So I spent almost a year learning everything I could about linguistics, and here's what I found. There is an emerging body of research now that is just coming out that shows a deep connection between the words we use as a society, as a group, and as individuals, and the thoughts we think. And there's a connection between the thoughts that we think and the behaviors we display. Follow me on this. Mm. If, if you take a culture that has future tenses, right? Uh, uh, in English, we can talk about tomorrow, mm. right? We'll, we won't just say it happened. We will say it will happen or it did happen, right? We have tenses. But there are other languages, Chinese, for example, they don't have a future tense. So they're always using one tense and you're having to learn based on the context and conversation when an event happened. Hmm. But does that matter? Actually, it does. In societies that use a future tense in their language, that that society thinks about the future more often. We think about what we talk about. And because we think about the future, our behaviors as a society have changed. If you look at the behaviors of a future language culture, you find they practice more safe sex, they smoke less, they save more for retirement. They're thinking about the future, and as a result, their behaviors are changing. But where does that come from? It comes from the things that are coming out of our mouth, the words that we're using. 
Now overlay that to speaking God. If you're like me and you say spirituality is important, God's important, uh, words that are in decline right now, kindness words, courage words, hmm. the words that we call the fruit of the spirit, they're all in decline. Some of them by upwards of 50% over the last half century if you track the language. We're using those words less often. The less we talk about God, the less we think about God. The less we talk about faith, the less we think about faith. The less that we talk about kindness or compassion or courage or goodness or love or faith, the less that we will think about those things and the less that our lives, our communities, and our cultures will be shaped by those things. Mm -hmm. And so we have to revive the language of faith, the vocabulary of faith, so that we will attune the, the collective minds of our culture, our communities, our homes, and our families to matters of transcendence. And if we don't talk about these things, we will not think about these things. And if we don't think about these things, we, can see, we will see, absolutely will see a disconnect between the things that we claim to love and the lives that we live. Hmm. So, it, so as, a, as an American culture, so, we, so we're living, based on your research and what you're seeing, we're living in a, or a lot of our language is a lot more future oriented. Uh, is that is that correct? Com yeah, we're, we we have future in English. We have a future tense. Uh, you know, mm. another if you look at an, another great shift that's happened over the last fifty years, mm. and you can find this from Google Ingram data. You Google has compiled all of the books and articles and speeches and websites and everything into what they call it Ingram, and you can search it and you can search this data and find which words are rising and which words are declining. Hmm. According to analysis that's been done on this data, a great example is ethical language is declining. Moral language is declining. Economic language is increasing. So it makes sense that when you're making a decision in the business, in the business world, you're thinking less about what's right and more about what's profitable. Hmm. Uh, if you look at it, you'll see communal language us language has declined meanwhile similarly individualistic language has increased so no wonder we live in a me first mm. or me only society because we're talking me 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 we're talking individualistic we're not talking about the community anymore so when jesus says for example who is your neighbor a lot of americans are saying what are you talking about mm. I, I i i'm t i i i'm only thinking about me and so we're not thinking about our neighbors. Our lives aren't shaped by our neighbors, but it's a function often of our language that we, we were created by God as speech people. God could have made us a number of ways, but God made us speech people. God gave us this holy gift, creating us by words to be people who use words to create ourselves. Hmm. And when we use those words, we are actually shaping ourselves, we're forming ourselves, we're forming our neighbors, we're forming our families, and we're forming our communities. And so the stakes in this conversation are unbelievably high. I would say higher than 99% of Americans even realize. Wow. And even as you were saying that, I was thinking, um, even the, the Me Too movement, again, it, it, it comes from the, the initial word is me. So I, I, I know the intention is something that's on a bit more of a communal basis. But there is there's a, there's the idea or the element of self that is that is the is the first part of that, the, the, the first part of that really the hashtag or that, you know, that saying, which is interesting. Which I, I don't know if I, I wonder if that reflects kind of again our our individualistic tendencies and our and our inclinations uh, as a as a culture. 
Yeah, that is that is correct. Wow. Um, so I, I kind of want to want to to know uh, just obviously I think uh, there's been a lot of misconception or uh, misuse over, overuse or even abuse uh, of a lot of these a lot of a lot of sacred words. Um, I, I guess where have you found people you know misusing or abusing or overusing these the most? You know, we find we find when uh, when I when I took the people that that we had talked to in our survey and I asked them why are you not speaking God, there was a range of answers they gave, and uh, some of them said, uh, you know, I'm not speaking God because words have become religious words have become politicized. Hmm. And they've become used for partisan ends. And by the way, this is left and right. It's not just Don- this is not hate Donald Trump time. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the way that Bill Clinton spoke, I mean, it's shockingly religious. Uh, he would use his own religious language. You know, when 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 he finally admitted the Monica Lewinsky scandal was was true, he called it sin. Mm-hmm. So there there are dog whistles that the Bushes have used, Clinton. Uh, Obama, there's there's all of this happens in the public square, and when you begin to use religious words for political ends, there are a lot of people out there who say, yeah, no, you know what, if 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 using these words is going to make me seem like the TV preachers who are gathering around this this president, I'm out. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, there are people out there who say, I've been hurt by these words. They're that somebody told, there was a pastor out there, there was a Sunday school teacher out there, and they did something to hurt me, but they claimed they did it in love. Mm-hmm. Or they called me lost, but they used that word in a way to say I was less than. Mm-hmm. I was untrustworthy. They've been hurt by these words, and so because they have pain associated with the vocabulary of faith, it's now toxic. Uh, a lot of people out there say, you know, I don't want to sound like an extremist. Uh, there's now a, a survey that Barna conducted that showed the majority of Americans believe if you are trying to convert someone to your faith, you are an extremist. The majority of Americans now believe evangelism is an extremist thing, hmm. uh, particularly among millennials. They're very sensitive to being seen as extremists by using religious words. So there's a lot of reasons why we aren't using these words. A lot of people even say, and th- this happens even among Christians, I just don't know what these words mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, ask somebody, ask them, what do you mean when you say that? I had a friend the other day who said, uh, she, she said, uh, we were actually talking about this, this why, who's a Christian, why are you a Christian, whatever. She said, well, you know, I asked Jesus into my heart. And I said, what does that even mean? You ask Jesus into your heart. Think about yeah. that. Like, where did we? Where did you come up with that? Yeah. Like, into yeah. your heart, the the muscle in your chest that pumps blood. And she said, well, that means that I've received God's gift of grace. And I said, yeah. Well, what does that mean? What is the gift of grace? What does that mean? And she said, well, that means that I'm saved. That I've been I've been saved. And I said, saved. What does that mean? And she said, I invited Jesus into my heart. <laughs> And I thought, okay, now, now we're, now you see, we, 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 we're using language, and you, we don't even know what it means. We, we sort of intuit what it means because we've been in communities that have used this language. But now imagine somebody who's not a Christian, who's not a believer, who says, "What do you mean?" 
now you go, yeah, I don't actually know what I mean. And now you stop telling people mm. at all. Now you stop having that conversation at all. And that's what's happening oftentimes in American culture is, is as people, as we become less Christian as a society, we're encountering people now more and more who are asking us why we believe what we believe and what we believe. And when you get down to it, a lot of people don't know. And when we realize we don't know what we're saying, we stop saying what we should be saying. Hmm. That's interesting. And I, and I was thinking as well, I, I wonder if it's, if this, if it's heightened with the, 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 the first thing I can think of is emojis, you know, or having like the praise hands or the, 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 uh, you know, the hands together or whatever that looks like. Cause it, 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 it also, it's, it looks like it leaves an ambiguous interpretation for people again, to, to decide what it means. Uh, and I think, I think it, that's an interesting part. Have, has that been something that you've that you've thought about or has kind of played into this into this culture paradigm as well? You know, I talk a little bit about Christianese in this book and yeah. kind of the positives and negatives. Like, the, the, there are actually positives to, to some Christianese. Yeah. Uh, because in many ways, it's pointing to something that is real. Mm. Uh, and I think a, a strangeness of language, particularly when it's spoken in a community, can actually bind that community together. The problem is, is that, that we have a lot of those words, and yet there's this twin trend where we're really not gathering as much as we used to. You know, when I was a kid, I went to church like four times a week or five times, some insane amount of times. Now, fewer people are going to church, mm. and those people who are going to church are going less frequently. So the places where you would use those kinds of insider phrases, we're not really going to those places anymore. And when you, when you use those phrases outside of those spaces, it can become kind of weird and awkward. It can actually make you feel odd. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there are some issues now where a lot of these kind of lingering uh, phrases of Christianese, uh, particularly that came... Um, they sort of rose up in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s are kind of still sticking around. I think what we need to do is, with many of those phrases, is begin to think about what they mean and use more precise language. Not, not necessarily uh, secularized, if you will, language. We can use sacred words. But some of those cliches, I mean, cliches are by nature sort of hollow and empty. Hmm. So instead, instead of just like, bashing Christianese and say, let's not use those words. Those are so cheesy. Instead, let's say, actually, that word is pointing to something that is real and true. So let's think about what that thing is that's real and true. And let's talk about that. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so just moving forward, uh, I want to leave a lot of, you know, a lot of content and the, the really the research and insights and um for, you know for 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 myself or for you know folks to actually read um so, but i want on the last last part on the book i just want to know what three pieces of advice would you give for practical uh, practical ways people can learn to speak from scratch right now uh -huh. well you know i'll give you five actually because uh, I, I, I share this approach. There's, a, there's a, an appendix in the book called A How-To Guide for Seekers and Speakers. Mm. And um, I'm going to be doing a big Seekers and Speakers book tour, and I'm going to do a Seekers and Speakers podcast. And I really want to help people 
begin to find this confidence in the vocabulary of faith again. But I use this kind of uh, acronym because I try to make it as, as succinct as possible where I said speak. And S is stop. Like awareness precedes improvement. So many of us have never stopped to say, what are the words that I feel tension using and why? What are the words that I should say, should be able to say in conversation, but I can't? Where are the places where I don't feel like I can have a conversation, and why do I feel like I can't? So just having some awareness around that, I think, is important. P, I said, was ponder. So, like, begin to put together a list of the words you avoid, the, co- the places that you feel like you can't have these things, and then ponder those one at a time. Think about, what did I really grow up thinking that word means? what what does it mean like that's that's important like what is the what is the definition or the meaning of this word i've been given then e is explore and this is really important because one of the things i argue for in this book that will be a little bit provocative is is an imaginative or a transformative approach to language you know c.s lewis said that language is like a tree that there's this trunk which was kind of the original meaning but over time it has to keep sprouting new branches as the needs of culture change. And this is really not a controversial yeah. way of understanding language, that all language must change mm-hmm. or die. So explore new ways of understanding the word, explore new places that you can begin using that word or having those conversations. A is apply, that's go out and do it, engage in this kind of word play. And then K is like, keep talking, get, in, get into communities, small groups, and begin to brainstorm together how you can how you can begin to revive the language of faith in your own way, in your own day, in your in, in your communities, and begin sharing those yeah. stories. So I think if, if 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 I can get even a small number of people to do this in their own communities, in their own homes, in their workplace, with their friends, in their churches, in their small groups, I think we could really see a movement to revive the language of faith. In 21st century America. Wow, great! Can you can you just um just uh, su- summarize again just the 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 uh, first word for each of those as well? Yeah, so it's speak. Speak. Uh, S P E K. I know that sounds a little cheesy, but it's easy for people to remember. I think so. It's stop, ponder, explore, apply, and keep talking. Stop, ponder, explore, apply, keep talking. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, well, I, I want to transition a little bit just to hear a bit more about your personal story. And uh, obviously, this the, the book has uh, I'm really excited. And uh, it's I know it's you know they they say you know books every two years, as you mentioned, or so it's almost like two years of two years of study of wisdom of kind of immersive experience. Um, but I, I want to hear a bit more about you know about your kind of backstory, your your personal faith your personal faith walk as well. So. Um, the first, just the first question I want to know, can you just share a bit more about your personal walk with Christ and when you found yourself, uh, really deeply connecting with God the most? Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, I was raised in a pastor's home and was quote saved at like five years old, but I had no, no real idea yeah. what I was stepping into. And at 12 years old, I kind of woke up. I had a, I had a, a true sense of spiritual awakening and decided this is this story that I've been hearing in church and at home is a story I want to be a part of. I want to connect my life to this. And so 
that was a conversion moment for me. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, I've had various crises, I'd say faith crises, where I've thought about walking away from it. But at this point, I don't even know how I would do that. I just feel like the story of God that we find in the pages of the Bible is so central. It makes sense of the world. You know, again, to use C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity the way that I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but because, uh, but it is because of it that I see everything else. And Mm. the Christian of faith makes sense of the world for me, and it makes sense of me for me. And uh, so that's sort of uh, my faith journey in short. Mm. So it sounds like really through you, through getting in and tackling through scripture has been maybe the, the, one of the you know ways kind of that that you've uh, been able to, as you said, not not only uh, you know see see yourself, but kind of see the world as well on a, on a macro scale. Yeah, I scale. mean, the, the, I'm, I grew up evangelical, so the Bible is central to the way I mm. understood the faith and the way that I engaged everything. I would say though, I'm also uh, barely a millennial. And so experience is important to me. You know, I was I was sitting around the other night telling stories of things, uh, ways that I've seen God show up in my life uh, with a friend of mine who's a well-known Christian musician. And I had said to her, I said, you know, on the days where I'm tempted to just doubt it all or just walk away, I just come back to stories like that and I say, I really believe God was there. So you can't tell me God doesn't exist because I've experienced God. And... Um, she said, really, that's sometimes that's all you have. And so, you know, there's a spiritual practice in the New Testament. It's a spiritual discipline of remembering. It's what Jesus said at communion. It's, it's, uh, it's at a very ancient spiritual practice. If you read the Old Testament, you'll remember God would say, when you come into this land that I prepared for you, remember or do not forget do not forget what the Lord did for you, that the Lord took you out of the land of the Egyptians and slavery and broke the bondage and said, do not forget, remember. Mm. And so it's important, actually, not just that we take this sort of post-enlightenment uh, Bible, uh, the, the Bible is the word of God and here's the arguments it makes kind of approach to mm. it, mm. but that we would really remember the experiences on a regular basis, the experiences of when the divine intersected the mort- our mortal lives. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, being at the uh, the intersection, really, of, of faith, culture, politics, um, and kind of you know how they all play play off play off and with each other, and kind of going back and forth. Um, I, I'm sure there's been situations, uh, whether you know self-induced or. It, that are kind of a a, a, a proactive approach, or rather a, a response to an external event or a circumstance. I just want to know, kind of, when you're put into these, you know, especially the challenging conversations, what is your, you know, what is your approach going in? Kind of, what are you thinking about when you, you know, step up to whether it's to make a statement or to, you know, to give to give a speech on something that might be pretty challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, what I have, I have said, the pressure that's placed on us all, and this is not just true of people who are, quote, thought leaders or who have to give talks or write articles, not mm. that. It's all of us, a conversation you have at a water cooler. Mm. There's such a pressure to, to have the right answer. And 
I've just had to die to that pressure because you know what? I don't actually have the right answers. And the answers that I thought were right five, six, seven, 10, 15 years ago, now I look back and think, well, that was ignorant. So instead, what I hope to do is, is to model for people what it looks like to wrestle with the right questions. So even in this book, in learning to speak God from scratch, I, I don't know that I have all the right answers, but I do believe this is a very good question. And I hope that people will read this book and then go ask that question themselves, then go wrestle with that question themselves. I think that that's really the thing that has taken the pressure off. And it has also mm -hmm. led me away from making super dogmatic, even argumentative statements in conversations or in speeches or in articles to instead frame things in a rhetorical pose a question. You know, there's the, the Quakers had a spiritual practice of wondering. Whenever somebody says something that you don't agree with, instead of thinking about a rebuttal, hmm. wonder, wonder about it, wonder about what they, what, what, what may be true in what they're saying or what it may raise inside of you that you need to think about. And so I engage in that practice more than apologetics even hmm. that I used to sort of engage in. That's wonderful. Yeah, completely. I, I think that's that's really profound. Um, seeking to 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 ask the right questions, and uh, I agree. I think when we're able to um, to get to asking again, as you mentioned, at a water cooler, or you know, to to a friend on you know that you're playing pickup basketball with, or whatever that looks like, to ask these rhetorical questions as well. That maybe that you're that you're struggling with yourself. Um, and I and I, I found that I think when we're a lot of times when we, you know we're doing writing, it's we're not writing really for anyone else, but we're actually writing about ourselves and trying to answer a question kind of through that writing process or through or through that question. Uh huh. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, la last kind of few few thoughts and parting questions here. Um, so obviously, there's been a, a shift in the United States in the past year and a half since since January twentieth of two thousand seventeen with the inauguration date. Um, question I have for you is really what, what have you learned the most across this past year and a half? Mm. You know, there are a lot of people out there who have pointed out that the election of Donald Trump was an apocalyptic event. Mm. And they're not saying that in the sense that it's the end of the world. That's, that's silly. Um, it's, it's unserious, but what they're saying is apocalyptic in the biblical sense. In the biblical sense, something that is apocalyptic is an unveiling. It shows you what's true. And I think we've seen what's true in America and in Christian communities, which is, uh, we can no longer pretend that sexism is something we've moved beyond. We can no longer pretend that we're not people with deep-seated anger and hatred. Mm -hmm. We can no longer pretend that racism is a thing of the past or that xenophobia is not alive and well. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, the election of Donald Trump was a real gift for us because we're able to deal with reality as it is and not as we falsely believed it was. And uh, that's what I have learned is to allow the lie that I called truth to die and instead deal with the world uh, as it's actually showing itself to be. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's 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 wonderful. There's a lot of these maybe are these self-asserted truths that we believe to be truths only when we're when we kind of uh, 
kind of beat down to um, to our, I, I guess, to our really kind of to our, our, our weakest points or to our maybe our uh, something that we might have known in the past, right? We're ultimately exposed to to our to our true faults um, in areas where we're clearly haven't you know haven't haven't moved to the to nearly to the place that we that we might have thought so. Um, and uh, uh, just want to know uh, last question, and then just want to hear uh, kind of where where people can find you, and then also uh, just maybe one other thing that we didn't cover that's that's on your heart and you'd like to share. Well, I think you know, kudos to you. It was a great interview. So I feel like you've we've covered the the gamut of everything. Uh, that we needed to cover uh but i will say if people want to connect with me they connect with me on social media on instagram on twitter facebook whatever or you can come to my website jonathanmerritt.com you can see you'll find links there to all my writings at places you know like uh, the atlantic or the washington mm. post wherever and uh i hope people will pick up a book mm. and uh they can buy that, uh, I guess, wherever books are sold. Uh, learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, it's been a, been a pleasure having you on today, um, hearing more about your book, Learn to Speak to God from Scratch, but, uh, but then also just hopping into your personal story and um, where and how God has been working through you uh, throughout, throughout it all as well, when sometimes... Uh, knowing he's there is the the only thing that we can uh, really look for and look look back on. Oh yeah, thank you so much, Tyler. Appreciate it.